This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 8th, 2014. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the crazily exciting opening week of the baseball playoffs, and whether we're ruining it all by constantly complaining about how dumb all of the managers are. Ned Yost, come on, man, with the bunting. Mad Williams, you got to put in Clippard. Clippard. We'll also discuss the NBA's new $24 billion TV deal, and whether the... Somebody Mikhail Proker office so, here. <laughs> somebody just went long on NBA TV deals. Um, we'll, we'll discuss whether the TV sports bubble is about to burst. That guy might be sad. Um, and for our last segment, we'll be joined by writer and raconteur Roy Blunt Jr. We'll ask him about his classic book on the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers, about three bricks shy of a load, and how football has changed since he spent a year with one of the NFL's most legendary teams. We are recording this week's show live 
at Galapagos Art Space in lovely Brooklyn, New York, and we are doing so in front of a live audience that will now confirm. That will now confirm that it can read my thoughts, um, that it is both live and an audience. Thank you very much, live audience. Um, alongside me is Pelham Pelican, Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Hello, everybody. And also here with us is another New Yorker, two-thirds of us being New Yorkers. Uh, it's Oceanside Sailor, Mike Pesca. Thank you. He is the host of The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Who do you, who do you got, Sailor or Pelican? In a fight? In a fight. Well, if Coolridge was writing the poem, the albatross would win. I just want to say that even though Stefan and I are technically New Yorkers, Josh has a New York connection in that he is a Jew. It's true. That is very true. It's irrefutable. Thank you for welcoming me back to your fair city. Uh, all right, there have been seven, uh, 16 games, actually, so far in the baseball playoffs. Ten of them have been decided by one run. As Ben Lindbergh pointed out in Grantland, around 28-29% of games in the regular season in the playoffs in a typical year are decided by a single run. Um, it's 63% this year. So we have the objective evidence. These playoffs are awesome. They're exciting. Um, but if you're following the conversation about these games online, it seems like the closer the games are, the more the conversation comes around to the fact that these managers have an IQ somewhere between a rosin bag and a bucket of sunflower seeds. Um, first, it was the Royals' Ned, Young, Ned Yost with all the bunting. In Tuesday night's elimination game, Nationals manager Matt Williams, he was pilloried for bringing in uh, not one of his best two relievers, Drew Storen or Tyler Clippard, um, or even ace Steven Strasburg, who's available. Um, and then in the Dodgers, Don Mattingly, he seemed like he was maybe a, a sleeper cell for the Cardinals. Just not that familiar with baseball. No. Not a fan. <laughs> no, uh, no Puig, no Yesiel Puig. I mean, he was striking out a lot, but he's their best hitter. No Kenley Jansen in the deciding game. So do you feel like, Mike, that this conversation about managers takes away from the fact that these games have been really exciting? Are we kind of ruining our enjoyment of the playoffs? No, it adds to it. And by the way, even though you have that stat about one-run games, you know, a couple of the games that went into extra innings were decided by more than one run, so you add that up, it's all been exciting, 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 whitey bunt, exciting, exciting, not playing Puig, but I do think that adds to it. Now, someone... You like statistics. Someone's going to point out that it didn't really affect their chances of winning that much if he didn't have Puig. Doesn't matter. He's maybe in the last few games he hasn't been their best player. I think he's their best offensive player. Put your best offensive player in. And it's kind of great to parse it out and to debate it. And unlike the argument with college football, oh, this horrible injustice adds to the conversation. This isn't talking about it injustice. It's talking about a managerial move. And even though it's a bad move not to have Puig in, you know, it's defensible insofar as I'm sure a third of the people who are huge Dodgers fans on 
bigbluenation.com or whatever the hell their website is were saying, I don't think you should play Puig. So there was some sort of logic to it, and the game didn't dictate Clippard going in, for instance. So, you know, you could get all excited about the actual thing you're seeing and the mental mistakes that are being made. I think that what it comes down to often in the postseason is that we, we wonder whether managers are managing differently. Are people thinking differently? Are they changing their strategy because of the pressure, because of the situation, and trying something different because they are nervous, they are worried, they're scared about the blowback? But in this case, it seems like, and look, what's a manager going to say afterward other than, no, that was a logical move? And Don Mattingly, after that game last night, sat there and said, I don't know what you're talking about. Yasiel Puig is fast, and I put him on first base, and he could have scored if we had a hit into the gap, and there's really no conversation to be had So here. he interpreted the questions as, why did you pinch run him there? Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to why wasn't Why didn't you play him the whole time? Yeah. Wait, do you think that's a bad thing, that, that managers should change their strategy? No, on the contrary. I think that managers should think in, in, in bigger pictures, because, look, it's not game 55 of the season. It's game last of the season, potentially. Especially if you don't bat Puig. Especially if you don't bat Puig. Um, but then you sort of, I think, contrast that. I think there are two other factors at play here, Josh, that you can respond to. One is that we are inundated by the ability now to have this conversation about what would have been the statistically correct, the analytically correct move at any particular instance in a game. And when I say any particular instance, I mean literally any particular moment in a game, we can now justify or criticize um, the, the, a decision that's made. And the second part of it is, from a fan perspective, from watching these games, how do we derive the greatest satisfaction? Thomas Boswell, the Washington Post columnist, had an interesting piece after the... The uh, game where Senators they took Jordan Zimmerman out. The game where they took Jordan innings. Zimmerman out in the seventh inning. And he said, sometimes you just need to let history happen. You just got to let sports happen. And you can't overthink it. And we are absolutely in an era where... Sports are overthought by the people that run them on the field. Mattingly was like, dudes, I was letting sports happen. I don't, know what, I don't know what you guys were watching. I was letting sports happen. Well, I think what the conversation about these moves doesn't acknowledge, you were kind of building a straw man, and I now embody the straw man. You're going to hang built. my straw man in effigy? Yeah. Um, is that they don't acknowledge that any of these decisions has such a microscopic effect on the game, and it's just that you can argue about should you have brought in Clippard, should you have bunted seven times in a game. Yeah, these are things that you can debate and you can take either side of the issue. And even though it's not actually that significant in the game, the biggest factor in the Cardinals winning the game was Matt Adams hitting a three-run home run. Okay, but... (laughs) That was, first of all, the only home run that Clayton Kershaw has ever given up on a curveball to a left-handed hitter. And I... Ever. Ever. Well, there was that time in eighth grade, but we don't talk about that. (laughs) It was pimply. It was his awkward face. Um, But... I would have to say that him being on three games rest and more tired than he's ever been and on his whatever, 94, 90th pitch of an inning after three games rest, you could make the case that that was possibly the worst curveball he's ever thrown uh, to a left-handed hitter. And that's on the manager a little bit. Let me defend, even though I think there should be more caveats and more of an acknowledgement that these debates, even though they're interesting to have, are not actually important. But to defend it a little bit, if you were to construct a system to pick the best team in a sport. It would be the exact opposite of what is in baseball. You have this incredibly long regular season that eliminates like not very many teams. So you have all these teams go to the playoffs and then you choose like an incredibly short series that guarantees 
that the winner will be random, that yeah. there's not enough information. And so these are like microscopic things that you can actually control in a game where you know the outcome is going to be random, even if you make the best decision, who knows if it'll work out. And the these are the and if it doesn't work out, then it's not the best decision. But the, the decision about should you bunt, should you put in a pitcher, these are things that a manager, like who is the proxy of the fan, these are things that you can actually, these are the outcomes that you can control. And I think last night's game between Washington and the team that you can say to, You can say their nickname, say, I'm allowed to say that team's nickname? Yes. Okay, yeah. The LG, Senators. LG. Um, but I think that's a case in point where you can actually narrow down the decision. And Matt Williams' decision to pitch not one of his two best relievers in a crucial situation in a particular inning earlier than he might have pitched one of them under normal circumstances is debatable, is criticizable. Look, a manager is not going to pull moves that are so boneheaded as to you know, lessen his team's chances of winning by 7, 12, 15%. He's not going to punt on every down, especially because it's baseball. Um, <laughs> but if he makes bad decisions, he makes bad decisions. These seem like bad decisions. I do think you need to be flexible and in the moment. Um, I remember when uh, Mitch Wild thing uh, Williams, Williams gave up that home run um, that ended the World Series against Toronto to uh, Joe Carter, and Fergozzi was saying, this is, this is what got us here, this is what got us here. And I remember thinking, this is pre-hang up and listen, right? But I remember, it was 93, I think. Yeah, but I remember thinking, what are you, a robot? Like, you're just going to do the things that got you here? He's our ninth inning guy. Yeah, he's ninth inning. It doesn't matter if he's terrible. Look, I saw in a crystal ball he was going to give up the home run. I don't believe in that. I, you know, you have to do the things you need to win. It seemed quite apparent that... If you're like the people who see the directions on the GPS to drive into a lake... Yeah. Just do it anyway. Yeah. Lake Williams. <laughs> Lake Wild thing. Um, so why do you have a manager there except if not to make these uh, little decisions that increase your chances of winning by a certain percentage? And I think that that wasn't done in Mattingly's case, and I think it probably wasn't done all the time with the relievers. But I don't think your general question, does it hurt our chances? Does it hurt our enjoyment? No. And the weird thing is, you know, your analogy is great. It's a crazy, baseball playoffs are crazy. We love the randomness. So the analogy I can think of is really getting on the player next to you at blackjack who didn't play perfect strategy. You know, it's all random anyway. You're going to lose blackjack. So if the guy hits on a soft 17, who cares? I mean, he's going to get fired by Dodgers brass, but who cares? Um, <laughs> Stefan, let's do a, some quick Royals chat. We've, we've got a nice streak here of talking about the Royals. They deserve it. They've been the most exciting, interesting team in the playoffs so far, and not just because of all the bunting. Um, we talked a little bit last week about how they're kind of resolutely anti-moneyball, and I think there's a connection there. Um, they don't walk a lot, and they steal a lot of bases. And it's fun as a fan to watch a team that swings the bat. The pitchers actually don't strike out a lot of guys either. So you have the Royals outfielders who are amazing defenders, like chasing after fly, fly balls. You have these guys running around the bases. Is, this, um, is there a connection there between like, them not having these like, money ball approach to constructing a team? Is that a problem for baseball that a team that's like not built in that kind of like hyper-rational way is so fun to watch? It's only a problem in as much as we've created a construct about what baseball should be now, that we believe that there is some model 
that the perfect franchise will embody, and they deviate from this construct. And in deviating from the construct, they do what sports are supposed to do. They make it interesting. They make it entertaining. They make it different. We can watch them steal seven bases in a game and go, oh my God, Like this isn't how baseball is supposed to be played anymore because we've been told over the last decade that there are certain truths about baseball that no longer apply. You know, down 7-3 in the eighth with uh, the A's John Lester dealing on the mound, they didn't seem like this clever counterintuitive <laughs> team, right? They, team like, they seem like a bunch of idiots who couldn't take a walk. And then they get a couple hits. Is, is there some proof or some wisdom in the, the Royals' construction, or are they the beneficiaries of this random series of chants? I say B, but they are exciting to watch. But at the same time, though, they also reflect some of the sort of conservatism in the game. Ned Yost became legendary and sort of reviled in Los Angeles, in Kansas City for the statement about one of his pitchers, Aaron Crow's inning is the sixth. That's it. We have a pitcher for the sixth, a pitcher for the seventh, a pitcher for the eighth, and a pitcher for the ninth. And we do not deviate from that construct. Interesting sentence construction, too. Aaron Crow's inning is the sixth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the inability to deviate hurts them. I mean, it, it hurt them. In the, in the, they were lucky to win the wild card game because of that inflexibility. And Ned Yost, if they had lost that game, that guy probably would have been fired. He's so much fun to make fun of, though. I'm glad that we have that guy to kick around. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Mike, that they're a team that when it's working well for them, there's no better, more fun team to watch. And when it's not, you're like, what the hell are you doing with all the bunting? Why are you stealing so many bases? Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad that we have them around. It's a lot more interesting of a postseason with them in it. Well, this is a good discussion, but then again, my inning is the first. <laughs> All right, we'll move on. We'll move on to the second inning. Steph and I will carry you here. You'll come back in. I think there's free substitution in baseball. We can sub you no, 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 just put in. me out and right against a uh, lefty hitter. It'll be All right, we'll do that. Yeah. Um, Say like Little League. Mike Pascoe, yeah. right field. Um, <laughs> oh. Sorry, Mike. When I was in Little League, the coach one year... This they invented was, a new field for Josh. They did. No, the coach was like, if you don't show up for practice, we're going to put you in center field and bat you last. I was at every practice. Josh Levine, center field, batted last. I just shouldn't have gone to practice. <laughs> I got screwed by that coach. Um, all right, a couple of days ago, the NBA announced that it had signed a nine-year, $24 billion deal to extend its very financially lucrative relationships with its television partners, ESPN and Turner Sports, $24 billion, Mike. That's more than most of us will make in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, in a press Wait, is that conference, billion with an R? <laughs> that's b- billion with a K in uh-huh. front. Um, in a press conference on Monday, Commissioner Adam Silver said the deals demonstrate the value of live sports in a DVR world, which is certainly true. The NBA will now get about $2.7 billion per year. Wait, that's billion with a W? <laughs> it is. That's all the letters. Um, the NFL's various packages make it somewhere uh, between 6 and $7 billion a year. And by the way, the NFL just extended its DirecTV deal, uh, eight years, $12 billion. There's also $5 billion ESPN with the college football playoff, uh, 14 years, $11 billion for March Madness. Add it all up, and that's more than the three of us combined will make in a lifetime. Wow. <laughs> So the question, Stefan, is, is this all going to come crashing down at some point? There are a lot of W's, K's, B's in there. Um, and if it does, you know, these deals are locked in for a long time. This NBA deal is nine years. So does that mean if it does all come crashing down, we might all be dead by that point? <laughs> 
We might be. You have a firm grasp of actuarial tables, I have to say. You know about lifetime earnings and causes of death. You're amazing. And I like your optimism about our life prospects, Josh. Poor and dead. The NBAs. I do. Um, this is a perennial conversation. I mean, we've, the, the death of a sport or the death of a business um, has been something that has been talked about you know, in baseball since baseball started in, in, the, in the late 19th century. And the obituary for all these sports has been written at various times. These markets do fluctuate. Um, it was not that long ago, a decade ago, that we were writing about, I was writing about, NHL franchises could not find buyers. The NHL's television rights fees went to NBC for zero dollars. They accepted zero dollars in a rights payment. That's less than what we're going to make in a lifetime. Right. (laughs) Yes, hockey, I understand. But there were periods. So wait, if I had been one, if I had been one dollar, I could have broadcast the NHL. I could have broadcast the NFL. The NFL brought to you by Josh Levine. Come on over. You in your room with the two little helmets. The point is that yes, there is fluctuation in these markets, but there's absolutely no reason to think. There are no economic indicators right now that, that, that these are bad deals for the, for the television networks. Um, there was a period in the early 2000s, the 90s and 2000s, when the networks were willing payers to the leagues to accept this content as loss leaders. They were losing hundreds of millions of dollars broadcasting the NFL into the 2000s. NBC completely dropped out of the business of broadcasting major sports leagues because it wasn't profitable until they came crawling back because they weren't getting enough eyeballs onto their television networks. There were declines in attendance during the most recent recession. There was talk then that the leagues were into a bubble phase and that the the economy would bring them down. Um, We have not seen that. And part of the reason we're not seeing that is because TV sports are the last destination live appointment viewing platform in broadcast and cable television. People watch it. Advertisers want to be where people are watching something live. So as long as that persists, these are probably not bad deals. Do we know how this economy is going to change? The economy of the web, the economy how these sports leagues are delivered and how fans consume them? We are not entirely sure of that. The NBA has baked in some um, changes to their broadcast deal, to their TV deal, anticipating that more people are not going to have cable TV, Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca, they're going to cut the cord and not have access to cable television, um, so we need to deliver the product to them in different ways, and then they're going to have to figure out how to monetize that product in order to justify the payments. Are you going to disrupt this conversation right now, Pesca? I am. I am going to throw a definition out there. Bubble. So what is a bubble? A bubble is when the, a bubble, right. a bubble is when the underlying financials don't justify the valuation of a company or an asset. And so look It's at, also a temporary thing. It is a, a bubble means that it is something that has happened outside of the norm. Yes. Bubble is also the singular of foam in a way, if you think about it. Um, <laughs> Dude, sounds like Mattingly at the press conference. (laughs) Just letting bubbles happen. Okay, so looked at one way, the valuation, let's talk about the uh, NFL, most valuable um, league. 32 teams, conservatively worth, what, 45, 50 
billion dollars. Jaguars recently sold for 770 million. They're the least valuable team. If the LA Clippers sell for 2 billion, how much does that make the New York Giants worth? 4 billion. So let's say it's worth 45, 50 billion as an asset class. If you compare companies that have that market capitalization with the revenue the NFL has, which is 10 billion dollars a year, the NFL is a ridiculous proposition. Their revenue in no way justifies their market capitalization. Now, there are a lot of companies like Amazon and tech companies that don't even have, you can't even calculate a PE ratio because they don't have any um, earnings. Putting that aside, it doesn't make sense from a revenue to value standpoint. And so therefore, all this underlying stuff doesn't make sense. However, the, all these teams are in the unique category. And kind of the only thing that matters is the scarcity and the fact that other billionaires like Steve Ball are going to pay $2 billion for him. He's paying $2 billion for an asset that can never generate $2 billion except the next time he sells it to another rich guy. So based on that, we're not going to have a bubble. Based on the fact that we have income inequality with so many rich people with no money to spend except when the Milwaukee Bucks come on the market, it's not going to be a bubble. And so I don't think this uh, redounds to the benefit of the consumer. But yeah, I don't really think it's a bubble. But you're, you're ignoring the possibility that fans will become disillusioned with a sport and pay less I don't, attention to That's the right. I am discounting that. It just doesn't seem like uh, professional sports. There's nothing. I know you could say, well, what about boxing? What about horse racing? There are arguments to that. Um, you know, if you include MMA, boxing in some ways is more popular than it's ever been. But I just don't see the NFL not being unbelievably popular, and you probably all know this, but there are so many stats you could trot out 34 of the last, of the 35 most popular shows watched after Labor Day last year were NFL games. It's like the 15 most popular shows since Labor Day are NFL games. The NFL the is NFL, averaging 20 million viewers per broadcast window and, and, this and year. And at a time when all other TV is cratering, so it used to be that... And NFL, at a time when the NFL has never been in a worse public light. Yeah, so even, I don't... I yeah, just, even with the 12 people who decided they're not going to watch the NFL anymore. <laughs> and they've each written a book. <laughs> <laughs> they have. So I think we're at kind of at an interesting time in terms of um, you know, TV and you know, how we're delivering television. And I think the reason that this deal is so big is that maybe in the past you would pay for um, you know, TV rights. In the future, maybe you'll only pay for digital rights. And the leagues are now kind of getting bites, you know, two bites on that Apple, because ESPN wants to build out basically the next generation of their Watch ESPN app, which is an amazing thing. Like, if, you know, we had imagined this existing 10 years ago, it's like amazing. You can watch any game on this thing, and they were going to want to build out kind of the next generation of that. And so you're getting, that's where the $24 billion is from. So I don't know if after, you know, people are not, you know, subscribing to cable anymore, if that's actually going to decrease. But I think that the people who say, oh, well, you know, sports contributes such a huge amount to cable bills and, you know, there are a lot of people who don't watch sports. I think that doesn't take into account the fact that like, people like me, where the only reason I subscribe to cable is that I, I want to watch the sports. But you're getting such a great deal. Everyone else is subsidizing you. you. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You're not writing one of those books. No. But the other, the other thing to think about is, so we talk about NFL, and once you say billion, the, you know, hey, that starts with a B, and so it seems huge. But compared Except to other companies with those sort of revenues, not that impressive. Like, I was trying to figure out what's an analog for the NFL's revenue. 
Dollar General blows it away, right? The NFL makes $9.5 billion a year. Dollar General makes $14 billion a year. So it doesn't seem that culturally massive. I don't think so. I mean, the Jaguar sold for $770 million. Coconut Water sold a quarter of its company. Coconut Water Delicious. for like $650 million. Life. So it's Coconut Water is almost <laughs> worth as much as the Jaguars. If they sold Coconut Water at the Jaguar Stadium, mm-hmm. the revenue would skyrocket. That's right. But I think, I think Mike, you discount the idea that sports could become less popular. And I think that the NFL has been incredibly smart over the last 20 years about changing rules to make um, the game more about offense. To you know, There were stories 20 years ago about how the NFL is that, dead. And, but I think baseball is struggling with it the most because the product that baseball is selling is this long history, is this, you know, the fact that it's been around since the 19th century. But you have seen... Is Ned Yost's bunting <laughs> penchant. Yes. Um, but what you have seen recently is um, the increase in randomness in the playoffs. Like, that's actually, they want to have games that you need to tune into, these one-game wildcard playoffs. That is the closest that baseball gets to the NFL product, which is, like, you have to tune in to this single game because there is scarcity. Like, the 162-game baseball regular season kind of works against them in terms of, like, a big national TV. It does in terms of a national market, but in terms of their revenue, I mean, you know, so the the, uh, Packers are the only team that has to release this stuff, so almost everything we know about NFL finances comes through the Packers, and so they make two-thirds of their deal, two-thirds of all their revenue based on national deals, and about a third based on whatever they do with the stadium. Yeah, they make two-thirds of their money off of novelty cheese heads, so we can extrapolate <laughs> that, that out to the rest of the league. Yes, exactly. They, they make a lot of money on the uh, Lynn Dickey home tour, which is extremely popular for some reason. Um, so yeah, baseball makes a ton of money based on the local stuff. You know, talking about this NBA deal, I'm fascinated with the over-the-top cord cutter um, option, but also what ESPN, ESPN and TNT, TBS, that whole thing, is paying for playoff games. They're airing 164 regular season games, and so let's do the math 15 times, uh, what is it, let's see, 82 games. So there's 1,200 regular season games. So we're talking about they're airing like... 85% of the regular season games, the teams get to keep all that local revenue. So national versus local is a big consideration, too. Slate Live Podcast. Come see Mike Pesca do math. (laughs) Live on stage. (laughs) And multiply two digit figures in his head. (laughs) I think we got to end there. I don't think we can top. That's more multiplying than you could do in a lifetime. It's true. (laughs) It's true. All right. um, For our last pre-afterball segment of the evening. I don't want you to think that this show is about to end soon. we got a lot more to go. This is the anti-penultimate segment in a way. It is. Um, But we're going to be joined by the author of very many books. He's a former staff writer at Sports Illustrated and a longtime panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, Today we're going to focus on our special guests, rightly acclaimed about three bricks shy of a load. It's a season-long look inside the vaunted 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers. That book, which came out 40 years ago, was described very well by the Washington Post, Jonathan Yardley, who wrote in a review, not merely is Three Bricks funny, smart, perceptive, and winning, there's also a lovely quality about it that for all the ferocity of the gridiron and the profanity of some of its language, I would call gentleness. It is a book about men in groups, this particular group being one that plays a very rough game, and it's actually far less about football than about people. Mm. With that... Let's welcome to the stage the great Roy Blunt, Jr. Thank you. Hey, Roy. Thank you. 
podcast. The word podcast always makes me think of invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> yeah. Donald Sutherland and a cast of pods. If you think you're getting out of here alive, Roy, you have another talk. Well, this podcast also does address the societal um, anxiety about communism, just yeah, like a vision of the body snatchers did. Transitioning smoothly <laughs> from that thought. The NFL has long been thought of as a capitalist, but also socialist. Now, um, if uh, you'll indulge us, um, if you can take us back to uh, 1974, you were a staff writer at Sports Illustrated. 73 season. 73 right. season. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry. And you ask um, your bosses, you know, can I follow a team for no, a year? The other way around. No, they asked me. After drinking uh, for several hours uh, for lunch, they called me in and said, would you like to spend a season hanging out with a, an NFL team? And uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, really. But um, then I... So I chose the Steelers, cause I, partly because I loved the Pirates. I had spent a lot of time around the, pir the Pirates of the 70s were really funny and crazy. And also I'd done a story about the Roonies who owned the Steelers. And uh, I knew that the Roonies lived right there and had lived there forever. And uh, Art Rooney, the owner, walked to the stadium from his house where he always lived, which is now in a black neighborhood. And, uh, it was, and I loved the town of Pittsburgh, so I thought I could write about the team and the town and the and it turned out to be an ideal choice of team. And how would you describe, you have a great rapport with the players that comes across in the book. Was that an easy kind of rapport to develop compared to, say, with the Pirates? Well, I go back to uh, bar rooms again. Um, they drank a lot. Yeah, they did. Uh, the first day of practice, uh, Ed Kiley, the PR guy, introduced me to Bruce Van Dyke, the guard. And he said, well, come after practice to the 19th hole, which was this was uh, the closest bar to the training camp, and I went with them and saw astonishing beer drinking. And, uh, <laughs> and I mean, they would drink like 12, they, they would, you know, they would pour beer over ice and drink like 12 before dinner because they had to get back by 6.30 to have, you know, for the dining hall. And it was, um, so once I showed that I could uh, drink eight beers before dinner, uh, <laughs> And then we would go out again. We would sneak out then later. It was, uh, you know, you always wanted to try to beat curfew. And uh, so it was lots of, of that sort of uh, socializing. And uh, I enjoyed that. And uh, so, yeah, but I feel because Van Dyke and his friend uh, Ray Mansfield, who was a center, were really popular players. And since I was hanging out with them, gradually I got to know the rest of the team. It took a little while, but uh, I've, I always found in covering sports that, at first, they wouldn't tell you anything. They were just, but once you got to know athletes, they often would just tell you everything about their marriage and about that, you know, just uh, their diseases they had caught. I mean, <laughs> more more than you wanted to know. And uh, so all of a sudden, there I was. Just, and they uh, and they also said they figured I wasn't remembering anything, which uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't look like I was remembering anything, but uh, I did remember things. And back then, I could remember. Pretty well. So. Now, would you say this prolixity, this uh, tendency to tell you everything was based on the fact that they're athletes, they have camaraderie, there's male bonding, or was it mostly the beer? Uh, probably a little, little of all that. I don't know. They, you know, they're, back then players were, uh, this was 1973, and then I kept going back as they went to the Super Bowl. So uh, the expanded version of this uh, book goes all the way through all of their Super Bowls of that team. But you know they weren't rich and they weren't uh, huge. They were they were more 
you know, the linemen weighed 235, some of them, you know, and uh, they were sort of more human scale, and they, and they hadn't learned that you shouldn't talk to writers yet. <laughs> you know, a lot of people think that we've just sort of woken up to this idea that football's dangerous, that you can uh, get head injuries and lifetime of pain and injury, but there were books before Three Bricks, even, uh, Jerry Kramer's Instant Replay, um, North Dallas 40, the novel, Dan Jenkins' Semi-Tough, the novel, those all did get into the brutality of the sport. But I think there was a, there was a long distance between 1963 when George Plimpton did Paper Lion, the book that I imitated, mm-hmm. and 1973 when you interviewed these guys. And there's a chapter in this book where you basically let Ray Mansfield and Bruce Van Dyke talk about the violence and the injury and the brutality that for the time, I have to imagine, was pretty stark and pretty revealing. Yeah, I'm surprised. I just looked at this book again today for the first time in a long time, and I was startled by how casual they were about how much they hurt people and got hurt themselves. But, you know, I I just reviewed a couple of new books uh, about uh, pro football or about football, and one of the books quoted uh, Michael Strahan as saying that he loved it when he could hit somebody so hard that all the life drained out of him, and he just... He could see this perfect, pained, wasted, ruined human being that he had just knocked down. It was a little, not quite. How does little. Kelly Ripa feel about that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, you know, he well, you know, Regis said that, too. That's the weird thing. <laughs> he must want to do it to Kelly every now and then. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, and I compared that to uh, a quote from... Uh, the Marquis de Sade, which was similar, but uh, not nearly as sadistic as the, <laughs> the Michael Strahan quote. But, and and I, I do think that when people talk about hitting each other now, they relish it a little more. There's a, it's like movies are more, rub your face in violence these days. And, uh, and I think the football players I talked to were casual about how much, how badly they got hurt and how badly they hurt other people. But they didn't seem, they didn't seem sadistic. It didn't seem sick somehow back then. Uh, but it was, you know, I mean, Joe Green, who was the greatest player on that team, those teams, was just horrible. I mean, he would, uh, when he was in high school, he, uh, somebody, uh, he charged the other, t- the visiting team's bus and drove everybody out of the bus. <laughs> and just, uh, I mean, which that was sort of uh, sporting of him, I guess. But it, one time he was, he was so uh, dominating the guy who was supposed to be blocking him that the guy was limping off the field, and Green ran and grabbed him and tried to bring him back. <laughs> said, I want to play. I want to hit you some more. It's just, you know, I need you out here. Come on, the poor guy. Uh, so that was, that was kind of vicious. But it was, um, it, it somehow, it was more like working people talking about what they had to do yeah. for a living instead of... Uh, well, I think it was in that same chapter, the Van Dyke chapter, one part that really um, stood out to me was talking about how a lot of the joy of hitting was because they knew it would be approved of and validated by the coaches. And I think we can all relate to that in our jobs that you want to do something that will get praise. And it also stood out to me in the book how you related so much more and so much better to the players than to the coaches. Yeah, I didn't much like coaches. I always felt like the coaches were the principals, you know, and the the players were the, the kids. And, uh, and I just didn't trust coaches somehow or another, and they didn't trust me. I, I don't blame them. They did tell me, I, you know, I talked to the coaches some. But also Chuck Noel, the coach then, was a very guarded, uh, he was a really good coach, but uh, he was 
not much fun. And uh, he, so, but he was great in letting me do stuff, letting me access. I had access to just about everything, not team meetings, but uh, Rocky Blair offered to go take a tape recorder into the team meetings, but I didn't, uh, but I didn't think that was a good idea. Do you think, do you think it's changed? I mean, one of the things that feels like it's changed in reading this and, you know, knowing what we know about the modern NFL and experience what I got to experience in the NFL is that there did feel like a level of sort of candor, of nuttiness, that these guys were less sort of scripted, less successful, and they had less money. Yeah, they had few. There were fewer layers between them and the media, for, and and they didn't have TV so much. Now, they can just say nothing on TV and get the exposure that they need. Whereas, if you're talking to a writer, you have to say something interesting, um, <laughs> and they don't like that. Who, <laughs> who wants to say possibly interesting things to somebody who might take it differently? Uh, so they were just more accessible and more human scale, and and also they were really, mostly they were either from the streets or the country. You know, yeah. they were they were uh, had come up hard, and they had stories. You know, and uh, they they were great talkers. And and then Pittsburgh was full of great characters, great talkers. So that was just a wonderful uh, setting for a book. You know, I, I have a theory as to why the way they talked about violence uh, was a little different, a little more casual, and, and also the way re we reacted to it. And, you know, back then at Three Rivers Stadium, the crowd was probably full of guys who used their body to make money. I mean, the crowd was full of blue-collar workers. It's a blue-collar town. How do you make your money? Well, I experienced some physical pain mm -hmm. because I'm a blue-collar worker. Right. In Heinz Field, I mean, even though Pittsburgh's a blue-collar town, how true is that I mean, now. The steel mills were still yeah, operating Yeah, we, we've gone from it, it's, I don't think a coincidence that as the working man has declined in this country, football has been elevating and I think we see and we feel this need to, you know, elevate the working man. There's some of the few people in our society who still make money, you know, via the infliction or taking on pain. Um, the, the, the thing... The thing that really strikes me about the book is, and that's so leached out of football today, is that there is no whimsy in football <laughs> because of either um, NFL films or because of, you know, justified hand-wringing about head injuries. There's just no fun and no joy, and this book is all full of whimsy. It's full of, There are a lot of funny people, um, and uh, I was just going to say that now... Steel is no longer the Pittsburgh's big industry. It's healthcare. Yeah, right. which uh, Bio, yeah, uh, which means and there's a, the, the Steelers training uh, facility is right next to a big healthcare complex. So that uh, if somebody gets hurt, they just go next door. I think they'll probably change their name to the physicians' assistants yeah, before the Redskins right. change their name. The Pittsburgh <laughs> Healthers or something, which uh, reminded me of. Uh, the uh, veterinarian and the uh, taxidermist who went into business together, and uh, their motto was, either way, you get your dog back. <laughs> <laughs> and now lightning fill in the blank. Oh, wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> um, so having followed uh, the Steelers in a season when they did not win the Super Bowl and then continuing to you know, know the players, write stories about them later, did you feel like... This is kind of a, a hard question to answer, but did it feel like their championships were deserved? Were they derived from hard work? Was it the talent of Bradshaw and Harris? Was there like some sort of special formula that they had to led this you know, that led them to being this legendary Super Bowl winning franchise? 
they um, they really had a good spirit. I mean, they they liked each other, and they there were some. They went through this when I was in '73. They had this quarterback situation where it was Bradshaw, Hanratty, and Joe Gillum, and uh, that caused some dissension. But and they, Joe Gillum was one of the first African American quarterbacks in the NFL, wasn't he? He was, but he never quite made it. And then he turned out to be the first heroin addict quarterback, and um, unfortunately, because he was a great player, he had he was the greatest. Uh, uh, best passer of the three. Uh, Ron Shanklin, the, uh, the receiver at the time, said that uh, t they went into great detail about their hands and how the ball felt. And Shanklin said that um, that Gillum's pass was easier to catch than uh, Bradshaw's because it spun differently or something. You know, it had less spin on it or something. I talked to Bradshaw one time and he was he went on and on and on about how great it felt. And, and this is one of the things I think people still do love about Sports. If you ever played a sport, you know you just get a feeling for how great. Whenever I see a beautiful spiral, uh, you know it's just a beautiful thing, and um, and you see it in slow motion, and you feel somebody's hands just sort of go and pull it down in there. Um, Bradshaw went on and on. I won't go on, but uh, about how great it is to throw a perfect spiral, and he said, you know, shooting. Uh, and I'm filled with pride. I see the ball going out there, and even if it's intercepted, he said. <laughs> that was an aesthetically pleasing pick six. <laughs> it was. Um, well, there's a long um, chapter in the book where you go through um, names, your favorite um, names of the Steelers and of NFL players in the past, and we do for um, what we call after balls on the show, where we each give our little spiel. We have a name that we associate with that. So could you um, pick a, a name for us? Like, what was your favorite name of, a, of one of the Steelers? Like the most mellifluous one um, of, of well, a player that you followed? Well, there, I don't know. There, one of my favorite players who just recently died was L.C. Greenwood. And uh, he, um, you know, his name was L.C., uh, but he would say that it stood for lover cool, which wasn't really <laughs> true. But then he said people always want him to have, uh, had, in college, people wanted him to have a name other than L.C., so you tell people it was Leonard Charles. <laughs> so he said, if you hear somebody come up and call me Leonard Charles, that's why. But then I looked at one of the, a forum he'd filled out about his name, and he had a middle name, which was Henderson, L.C. Henderson Greenwood. First name was L.C. I don't know. That's not very... But um, who's another great? It was Frenchy Fuqua who claimed to be who was African American, but claimed to be descended from a French count, and that's why he he was called Frenchy. Enjoyed wearing capes. Yeah, he wore capes a lot. He also alleged, facial hair. Allegedly, he wore, he wore boots with uh, transparent glass heel, high heels, in which a in which in each heel a goldfish swam. I never actually saw that. But I once was on the sidelines with him, and uh, there was, and I looked over in the front row of the seats, and I said, Frenchie, there's a guy there in a purple fur coat. And um, he didn't even turn around. He said, yeah, that's Henderson, my tailor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Roy, thank you so much. You're welcome. Sure. For doing this. Roy Blunt, Jr. And uh, about three bricks shy of a load. You can, um, it's been in print for the last 40 years. It's, um, there's an e-book version. It's uh, University of Pittsburgh Press, right, Roy? 
Yeah, it's the expanded version is called About Three Bricks Shy, dot, 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 and the load filled up. Which is, uh, and it's really one of the best powerful. football books, sports books, any kind of books. Um, so everybody should um, buy it, read it. You'll bound, it. just bound with printing. It's really <laughs> it top of that list. Gutenberg Bible, yes. About Three Bricks Shy of a Load. <laughs> That's a straight line. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so let us do Afterballs. Okay. And we will do uh, Frenchies. Frenchies Goldfish? Frenchies, let's do Frenchies Goldfish. All right. Um, are you ready to go, Mike? I could go. Okay. You ready there? All right. This is how it goes on the show every week. You ready to go, Mike? You ready to go, Stefan? All right. So, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the process of how I got to where I'm going to get, and then I'll get to where I'm getting. So I'm reading an ESPN The Magazine as opposed to ESPN The Endive Salad, a story about the San Francisco Giants broadcast team, Mark uh, Fainaru wrote the story, and it's about Mike Kruko and Dwayne Kuyper, and uh, Kruko's, he, he's sick. They're always pulling practical jokes on each other. And one day, Kruko wiped out on roller, roller blades, and then Kuyper went to the scene of the accident and set it up like it was a crime scene and had the chalk outline and all that and the uh, tape. And here's the quote from the magazine that got me a-thinking. The next year, we're going to the same spot, and he had it taped off like it was a homicide, Kruko said. A-hole, I was black and blue for my belly button all the way down to my knees, and he tapes off the scene, what a D, dot, dot, dot. And I was just thinking how much better those quotes would be if they just quoted them accurately and said asshole and dick, right? <laughs> what a dick. I mean, that would be such a better quote. And then I got to thinking, you know, we've never really watched a baseball game with a lot of cursing in it, right? I mean... Terrestrial radio has turned to satellite radio. We could hear Howard Stern curse, podcasts, you could curse, you could swear, but we've never really watched a baseball game with cursing in it. So I wanted to bring that to you. Here we go. But don't worry, there's going to be a turn. It's a beautiful day here in Chavez Ravine. I'm here with Joe Garagiola for game one of the 1988 World Series. Joe, what got you going as a player on a day like today? You know what I used to hope for in a big game? First pitch would hit a foul tip and hit me. Not hurt me, but just give me enough pain to take my mind off it. Joe, I gotta say, that is... That is fucked, Joe. That is really fucked. I mean, I don't have the DSM-4 in front of me, and I don't know if batshit crazy is a technical term, but that just does not seem right. Stewart comes back. Weekly grounds to third. Five of the first 11 batters, he's had a 3-2 count. You talk about living dangerously. Joe, that makes no sense. Five of the first 11 isn't a majority? I'm going to say that's a piss-poor point, Joe. I got I to gotta wonder if you're even... Thinking or if your head is up your ass, Joe, Lansford takes a strike. Okay, so then I realized this wasn't going too many places. But I was watching this game. I had to get a real game to watch. It's game one of the 1988 World Series. And as I was watching it for fodder for this great comedy premise that you just witnessed, <laughs> I was reviewing tape. I knew one thing about this game. Kirk Gibson hits the home run at the end. But then I discovered something else as I was watching the game. Just as uh, Petrock had his Laura, just as Dante had Beatrice, just as George Balanchine had Suzanne Farrell, so did Joe Garagiola have Jose Canseco. Look at those arms. Massive, roped, timber-like, nay, aberrescent arms. Look at those arms with the speed. Ah, the speed, the grace, the raw jackhammer-like power. How Garagiola wished to hold them, to have them. But lo, what if some ill would befall those arms? Hit him on the arm. I tell you, those arms are so big, it sounded like the bat. 
He could probably hit 280 with those arms. So far, we have seen at-bats where Canseco got hit by a pitch and an at-bat where he hit a grand slam. And Joe Garagiola, we've witnessed him basically crafting his own version of the Second Amendment, the right to bear witness to tremendous arms. And this is a complete athlete. He can do it all. He can beat you with the bat, speed, glove, arm. Yes, the arm. Garagiola reached with his small, feeble old man arms. He reached for a literary comparison worthy of this Bunyan-esque Adonis, this Adonis-like Hercules, this Herculean Atlas. Look at those arms. You see arms like that only in comic strips when they draw. All right. So there is Vin Scully, Garagiola's broadcast partner. And this man's a real, he's the greatest baseball broadcaster ever and he's given to actual communication so he's going to bring up the thing that's in the air which is that recently uh, you know in 1988 the Washington Post Tom Boswell wrote an article essentially talking about Jose Canseco and steroids and Scully tried to report this to his audience but Joe Garagiola jumps in but then when that steroid stuff came out that wasn't fair no and he said look at my charts and they look back in 1986 and he weighed 220 I talked to Barry Weinberg the trainer about that and he's got the whole thing and it wasn't fair and what bothered uh, Jose was he said you know the young kids especially those in Miami and he worries about that he said they're going to think well you take steroids you can do it there's a difference between strength and bodybuilding he just went to strength and that was a very unfair thing very unfair a veritable calumny I will now quote from the book uh, juiced by Jose Canseco the next year, 1988, Mark, McGuire, and I started taking steroids again. The media dubbed us the Bash Brothers, but we were really the Royd Boys. So that was written in 2006. Here's Joe Garagiola during this game to rebut the truth and smearing Thomas Boswell. We talked about the Conseco uh, and the steroid story with Thomas Boswell at the Washington Post wrote. I asked Conseco yesterday, and here's what he had to say about it, man. Basically, uh, I know it's uh, more or less just like a practical joke. A lot of comments Boswell made didn't make any sense. Uh, a lot of the comments were untrue and false. And uh, I don't think he took into consideration how much it would hurt uh, the, the player's family or, or the player himself. So there's a debate if the media knew about steroids. And yeah, Tom Boswell, some members of the media knew about it and reported it. But when we say the media, there is no the media. Joe Garagiola is a is a gorilla when it comes to media. Last year, the World Series Game 1 averaged not quite 9 million viewers. Back in 1988, this Game 1 averaged 35 million viewers. So when Joe Garagiola made all these comments about his arms and pretty much smeared Thomas Boswell and talked about how this was so unfair to Jose Canseco, he was totally setting the tone. And that was the tone that obtained for many years. I'm not saying that Joe Garagiola was the only one saying this. I am saying that he was a symptom of this culture and as we've seen here, kind of a simp as well. Thank you, Mike. Great arms, by the way. Mm. Um, Look at those arms. You ready? You ready, Stefan? Stefan, what is your Frenchie Fuqua? Well, last week... Frenchie's Goldfish. What is your Frenchie's Goldfish? <laughs> last week, the Library of Congress released a four-minute compilation of footage from the 1924 World Series. It was discovered in someone's garage in Massachusetts. 
It is fantastic stuff. A sweeping panorama of a packed Griffith Stadium in Washington, the numberless uniforms of the Senators and Giants, the windmilling windup of pitcher Virgil Barnes, and excellent chirons on the kinograms newsreel like Harris, Washington, hits a homer, and President is there. Calvin Coolidge is seen doffing his cap. But I was especially interested in the end of the game. All right, it's the bottom of the 12th, 3-3 tie. And there's Earl McNeely of the Senators driving in muddy rule. Pure joy erupts on the field when the Senators realize they've won. The players are leaping, they're running in circles, they're hugging, they're racing to the dugout. And then there's the Chiron. Capitals fans swarm onto field to hail victors. And swarm they do watch them. Men in dark suits pouring out of the stands and over the walls. They race across the outfield and fill the infield completely. We'll see now that they are going to face the Senators' dugout, and they're waving their hats and handkerchiefs in thanks to the team. And now this got me thinking about the evolution of the pitch invasion in baseball's postseason. So I did a by no means comprehensive forensic investigation of fans storming our autumn fields. So let's now fast forward to 1960 and Game 7, bottom of the ninth, World Series winning home run by Bill Mazarowski of the Pirates over the Yankees. And there's Mazarowski, he drives Ralph Terry's pitch over Yogi Berra and the left field wall in Forbes Field. He dances around second base, no fans yet, until Mazarowski gets to third, then he gets a few fans accompanying him down the line, and there will be a giant greeting party of players and civilians at home plate. It all looks pretty friendly. Now, you may have heard that American society changed in the 1960s. So let's contrast that, contrast that scene in Pittsburgh with the end of the 1969 World Series at Shea Stadium. There's Jerry Kuzman of the Mets. He delivers fly ball to left. Cleon Jones corrals it, famously goes to one knee at the warning track. He's happy and... All right, this crowd looks a little bit more aggressive than the one from 1924. <laughs> now watch right here. There goes a Met running across the infield chasing a fan who must have grabbed something out of the dugout. The fans really just wanted to meet the Mets. They're pulling hats from players' heads. They're pushing them toward the dugout. They're going for home plate. They're jumping 15 feet from the outfield wall, and they're leaping from the dugout roof. That's home plate there. There they go, over the dugout and onto the field. All right, now this inaugurated the decade in baseball field storming, and the epicenter remained New York. 1976 now. The Yankees get to the World Series for the first time in 12 years on Chris Chambliss' walk-off home run against Kansas City. The fans are on the field instantly. Now watch the cops. They will helpfully, helpfully open the door... <laughs> in the outfield wall to let the fans come onto the field. Chambliss, Chambliss gets chop blocked between second and third. Scared for his life, and he said that. He grabs his helmet, he barrels through the crowd, and he famously never touches home plate. When he finally reaches the dugout, a cop pats him on the back rather than trying to keep the fans away from him. Watch right here. The cop will pat him on the back and turn away from the fans. All right, now this scene wasn't apparently troubling enough to baseball's powers because 
1977. Yankees-Dodgers World Series Game 6, the full ABC broadcast featuring Keith Jackson and Howard Cosell is on YouTube. Two outs, bottom of the ninth. Yankees fans are sitting on the left field wall with their legs dangling onto the field of play. They are throwing firecrackers onto the field. Reggie Jackson runs to the dugout to get a helmet. He interrupts the last out of the game. One batter later, it is over, and oh my God. They, the Dodgers, by the way, bunted like, with two outs in the bottom line. All right, here we go. All right, there it is. Thurman Munson and the players abort their pitcher's mound celebration in absolute terror. I love that ABC's cameras follow Reggie on his fullback run to the dugout where he knocks two guys over. He sends the guy in the green jacket flying airborne. This time, the cops are no better prepared, but they do kick and nightstick a few fans in the outfield, which was helpful. I was at that game, but the guy who took me insisted on leaving in, like, the sixth inning to beat the traffic to get back to the suburbs. My brother stayed, and he brought home a bag of sod for me from the field. All right, 1980, before the final inning, Philly cops on horseback and with German shepherds lined the field of the, the lined Veterans Stadium. No fans got on the field. There was some storming in 1981 in New York, 1982 in Milwaukee and St. Louis, 1984 in Detroit. In 1986, back in New York, I fully expected fires and brawls at Shea Stadium when the Mets beat the Red Sox, but the footage incredibly shows nothing. And the reason is that the team had clamped down on fans going on the field after the divisional after the Mets clinched the NL East division. Now, that was the death knell for fans storming the field. In the 1990s, the baseball stadium transitioned from social cauldron to corporate venue. Fans going on the field completed this journey from a place for innocent celebration to terrifying fan anarchy to no fans at all. In 1996, the threat of a fan invasion had been so neutralized that after the Yankees won it, Wade Boggs was invited to go on top of a cop's horse in the, in the Yankee Stadium infield. But I want to show one last clip, and this is from the end of the 2000 World Series, Yankees over Mets, Shea Stadium, and I think it encapsulates our journey from 1924 to the modern day. Here we go. Last out, Mike Piazza flies out to Bernie Williams. Mariano Rivera celebrates. All right, you got your st standard modern dog pile here, but watch right here. All right, see those two guys? Blue shirt and black shirt, they do not belong on the field. <laughs> they are definitely not with the Yankees. They're jumping around, they're posing for a photo. They mug in front of the TV cameras. This is not the Yankee way. They managed to survive on the field for about 30 seconds until the very end where we see the cop drag blue shirt away right there. They get him. <laughs> and they drag him off the field, and that's where we are today. I kind of miss those days at Yankee Stadium, I must admit. That was a shame, yeah. That was a shame. Epilogue. Remember when the Red Sox won in 2004, and Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore went on the field? To film a movie. <laughs> to film a scene from a movie, and if that doesn't sort of... Bring it all. I was so I've been on many fields after a World Series, and it's gotten much worse. Uh, when the Red Sox won, they let John Kerry on the field. They let the guys from Aerosmith on the field. This made no sense. Josh, what is your Frenchie's goldfish? Thank you, Stefan. Uh, we said we've said a lot of words tonight. We've shared a few laughs. 
We maybe learned a thing or two, but there's one question that's hanging over us, something we need to answer for this to be a satisfying live podcast experience. And that question is, who invented ballpark nachos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for asking. And an article in Smithsonian Magazine last year, K. Annabelle Smith, explains that in 1943, in Piedras Negras, Mexico, a maitre d' named Ignacio Nacho Anaya whipped up a concoction that consisted of near canapes of tortilla chips, cheese, and jalapeno peppers. Nacho Anaya, though, is the Tinzig Norgay of our story, um, <laughs> while Frank, the father of Nacho's Liberto, is the Sir Edmund Nacho Hillary. Um, that is not a great analogy, but I liked it, so I said it anyway. Um, it was uh, Frank Liberto who came up with the pumpable cheese sauce that allowed a yellow chip-covering food-like substance to flow across America. He opened a nacho stand at Arlington Stadium in the mid-'70s, serving the snack to ravenous crowds at Texas Rangers games under the name Rico's Nachos. According to the ricos.com website, the nachos sold at the rate of one order per two and a half customers compared to a frankly pathetic one per 14 for popcorn. Come on, popcorn. Um, The Rico's website adds... A star is born, that star being nachos. Uh, (laughs) Having been born uh, in 1980 myself, it is hard for me to imagine a time when nacho cheese did not run down the aisles of every stadium and arena. Maybe you guys, we can can reminisce about that later. But um, (laughs) if you look back at contemporaneous coverage, you will find a country slowly discovering a new glorious thing, that thing, again, being nachos. in 1976 in Yankee Stadium, blood was running down the aisles of the stadiums. We, we saw that a minute ago. Um, there were the usual cotton candy, popcorn, peanuts, soft drinks, foamy drinks, wrote Don Henry of the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. On that, <laughs> That's when the Avalanche oh, the Journal avalanche. merged. It, they did. <laughs> the Avalanche <laughs> Journal. Dark, dark days in Lubbock. Um, that was on June. Well, was this, he was actually caught under a snowfall, and he wrote an Avalanche Journal. I don't know. <laughs> Reminisced about nachos. Sorry, I interrupted. No worries. Um, that was on June 9, 1977. He was describing a visit to Arlington Stadium. But the house specialty, he continued, that was the delicacy drawing the customers better than Homer's. Nachos. <laughs> First time a guy came down the aisle with a couple of bowls, you got to be kidding. But that was it. Gosh. Who can bite into a hot dog or shell a roasted peanut when the guy a couple of seats away is cracking down on a hot tortillo, dripping with cheese and topped by a slice of jalapeno pepper? Well put. Very well put. The bard bard of the early days of nachos. Um, But not, not everyone had such a glorious first nacho experience. In 1977... Just put that anywhere, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That man did not have a glorious first nacho experience. Um, In 1977, Steve Steinberg of the Mid-Cities Daily News wrote, the memory of a recent trip to Arlington Stadium still lingers. There I was attacked by a vicious order of nachos, (laughs) resulting in a three-day bout with Corbett's Revenge. Um, Brad Corbett was the owner of the Texas Rangers. By late 1977, the Dallas-Fort Worth area's nacho fixation was such that a writer for the Grand Prairie Daily News reported that the St. Louis Cardinals football team beat the Dallas Cowboys on Monday Night Football in front of 64,038 nacho eaters. (laughs) With the the eyes of America, Frank Gifford, Don Meredith, and Howard Cosell looking on. 
Howard Cosell, Stefan, you mentioned him, the legendary irascible Monday Night Football announcer. He is an important character in our Nacho story as well. Um, according to Smithsonian Magazine, Cosell was doing the play-by-play -play at a Monday Night Football game in Dallas when a plate of nachos was brought to the broadcast room. I will let the ricos.com marketing copy take over from here. That night and for weeks after, Cosell and the broadcast team work references to nachos and to the game analysis as often as possible. Some examples. Here's the kick. That was nacho, man. <laughs> what a nacho run that was. And hey, that's nachos all the way. <laughs> he gives the food national recognition, making the term an acceptable adjective for spectacular events and forever securing its spot as one of the sport watcher's favorite finger foods. All right, and Rico's.com marketing copy. So there are a couple of problems with this, that story. First, I'm actually not sure that nacho is an acceptable adjective for spectacular events. Ooh, no. <laughs> that was a nacho afterball, Mike. <laughs> it really has not caught on. Second, second problem. <laughs> second problem. I've not been able to track down any clips of Howard Cosell saying anything having to do with nachos. So this story isn't over. I did not go to journalism school, but um, my understanding is on the first day, you're told that if you hear a story about Howard Cosell and nachos, you must verify that information. So um, if anyone out there has a Howard Cosell kinescope in his or her attic, maybe alongside the 1924 uh, pitch invasion, please send it along. That would be a totally nacho move on your part. All right, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating, and you can become a fan on Facebook, facebook.com slash listen. That would be nacho. <laughs> no, but it doesn't didn't, work. You're right. Didn't work. Screw Ricos. Um, <laughs> our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Bolo. Executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Thank you so much to Galapagos, Artspace, and our live audience. Thank you. Thank you also to New York Comic Con Super Week for having us as part of the Super Week experience. And thank you very much to our special guest, Roy Blunt Jr., for being with us. And of course, remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>Here come some questioners. All come right. on. Stefan, see the mic. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to relinquish my microphone for our question. Hello, sir. Thank you for coming up. Um, please tell us your name and where you're from. Uh, my name's Kevin Townsend. I'm from New York right now, but originally Pittsburgh. Uh, very appropriate. So, um, what is your question? So my question relates to sort of the Pittsburgh series, more about violence in football as a whole. Um, I'm originally from Pittsburgh. The transition from... Uh, the steel industry to healthcare to offer just a quick image the US steel building which was once one of the largest buildings in Pittsburgh when I when I came in visiting had changed to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center logo up top so it's it's fully made the transition um, Pittsburgh Steelers right now are the second most penalized uh, team in the NFL and my question is are, are penalties a fair proxy for for violence in football is that something that you think is a fair proxy or something that 
doesn't quite translate as easily. No, I mean, it's supposed to be a sign of uh, undisciplined behavior. If you listen to all the people who didn't like the Miami Dolphins, the fact that Don Shula was on the competition committee. Um, I think that violence, like, the thing we need to recognize about violence and the horrible hits and most of the, uh, most of the injuries that are catastrophic, often, I would say the majority of the time, they're not even on an illegal play. And to me, violence isn't the violence that you see. It's all those multiple sub-concussive hits that accumulate like small car crashes and turn many of these players into, um, you know, dementia victims. Right. What was the situation with the Steelers and penalties in the 70s? Were they a heavy, well, a lot of, heavily A lot of penalties are just jumping off sides and stuff. I mean, I don't right. think penalties relate too directly to uh, excessive violence. But back then, you could be more violent, violent legally. You could bump and run and uh, beat up people. You could club them. a guy in the head. Yeah. You literally yeah. could. Wow. Head slap. I mean, I, the, I mean, that was one of the things that jumped out of me, and that's particularly in that chapter about Mansfield and Van Dyke, is that coaches coached players to use a forearm shiver if someone's coming across the middle, um, go for someone's knees, take them out, injure them if you possibly can. And I never heard anything like that, but that was you know, clearly part of the ethos of the game. It was yeah, fair game. Mansfield used to say, iron men and wooden ships. <laughs> but they would, you know, they would spear people with their heads. You're supposed to sort of stick your head in there, and you can't do that anymore. But there's something about the violence today that, uh, and maybe because it's all connected to the beating up women in elevators and things, that is unpleasant. And my son and I have been Steeler fans uh, forever, or since I did this book, and, uh, and he was four or five years old, and he is now abstaining from following football because he's decided it's, uh, it's, it's bad for people. So he's one of the 12. Yeah, right. I mean, but the, and his book is coming out next. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, but the, the rule-breaking part, I think, is uh, the penalties is really just a function of the bureaucracy of the NFL, that this is like the greatest sports bureaucracy that exists on the field. But I kind of like in the NFL as opposed to every other sport, if there's a penalty, they're always going to call it, right? It's no, there's not too many. I mean, obviously, if there's pass interference, it's a judgment call. But in the NHL, it's all like, well, that's obviously a penalty we're not going to call, and that's a penalty we're not going to call. And then there's the debate about, well, do you start calling penalties in the playoffs? How about when there's a penalty, you call it? It's nice. A lot, of, right. a lot um, of things you can call for penalties. There. There's a famous line uh, in a poem by... William Butler Yeats, uh, if the center cannot hold, mere violence is loosed upon the world. Centers have to be able to. Yeah, but isn't that, isn't that where he also says the Atlanta Falcons cannot hear the falconer? No, isn't that know, the same right, poem? Right, in the All guy. right, go ahead. Right, Jesse. What, yes, what is your name and where are you from? So, um, Jesse, I'm from here in Brooklyn, New York. And, um, I think after the World Cup this year, we all recognize soccer has sort of reached at least a second-tier status in the U.S. It's not the NFL, but you don't see, oh, soccer will never catch on. So my question is, what's the next sport that's going to be big, and what will these stupid objections to it be? Um, a two-part question. It's lacrosse, mm -hmm. just because I can't think of anything else, and, but I'm not sure what the objections are other than that it's lacrosse, and we all want to make fun of it. I always turn to you in times like this, Mike Fesca. A man, who can, a man who can think on his feet. Harness racing, and it's fixed. Uh, lacrosse, definitely, participation-wise, but the next big sports are already big now. It's just not we're paying attention. It's MMA and all the win Winter X Games sports are gigantic, actually, in terms of participation. They play well on TV, too. I haven't Dude. talked about team handball in a long time. Ah. So. Yeah. No. I remember somebody, a scout, football scout, saying that he had gone to Syracuse when Jim Brown was playing there. Yeah. And he happened to go over to the lacrosse field, and there was Jim Brown 
playing lacrosse, which he was also an All-American in. And the scout said, my God, they gave him a stick. <laughs> Jim Lacroix, uh, Jim Brown from Massapequa, no, from Manhasset, Long Island, was you know, widely known as the greatest lacrosse player ever to play. And he also averaged over 20 points a game in Nassau County basketball, which was broken by Wally Serbiak. So thank you for letting me use some Nassau County sports statistics. Uh, my name is Matt from uh, Jersey. Um, so to build on uh, your you know, conversation about money and sports and TV deals, um, do you think, like, I'm a lifelong Yankees fan and a baseball fan, uh, do you think, like, the money in sports, especially the playoffs, is like ruining the sport. So we're on October 8th. The playoffs won't end until basically the end of November. They're going to play more off days. They're going to have more off days than actually play baseball games that we're going to watch on TV. And do you think like the money in it is actually ruining the sport where you play 162 games, you have one off day every six days versus now in the playoffs, you have one off day every other day. Well, I think that the way that the playoffs are structured now, you could argue that baseball is more of a sport where you support your team um, than where you like will just want to watch because it's like the national game of the week or something. And there are more teams in the playoffs now. So I think it's hard to argue that fans are being less well served by the way the playoffs are now. And I think that, you know, it used to be where we would idealize when the World Series was on during the day. Why can't we have any day games during the playoffs? Then it was a period when there were no games on during the day, and now we've swung back the other direction, and people are complaining about how there are games on during the day. And I can't, we can't watch that 3 We can't game. watch them. But there are like four games on one day, like last week at some point. There were like all one-run games. Um, it's hard to argue that that was a poor experience for those fans. The one thing that I think that they could do better is that there were like fans of the Nationals who had no idea, like, the day before what time the game was going to be on the Monday. So I think they could do a better job with scheduling, um, but I don't think the way that the baseball playoffs are now, you could argue that it's, like, somehow worse than it was five or ten years ago. Like any very successful consumer good, I think that sports are perfectly calibrated or nearly perfectly calibrated to satisfy the consumer. And I think the postseason schedules are exactly what we want. And like if a we, good plate of nachos. Yeah, like but. it's it's nacho-esque in its perfection. And I think that if you talk about, you know, are they ruining implication that before they were pure, look at some of the structures of the postseason in the past. You know, the NCAA tournament used to only allow one team per conference. So you'd have clearly the two best teams and the you know ACC championship game would disqualify either Maryland or North Carolina, and that was it. I mean, one year, that year that uh, Bobby Orr f- flew across the ice, they were playing the, the Bruins were playing the St. Louis Blues in the finals, and the St. Louis Blues were an expansion team, and the NHL had decided all the expansion teams will be in one division, all the real teams will be in another. So you get to the finals, and you have this terrible team, and guess what? They got swept. So yeah, I think things are a lot better now. And I don't, I don't think, I think we often talk about how money is ruining sports, and when we say that, I mean, what are we talking about? Are the ticket prices too high? They do clearly eliminate a, a class of people. The fans that went to the game in 1924, or even in 1969, are priced out of going to a lot of games, particularly postseason games, where ticket prices are jacked way up. 
But where does that money go? I mean, yeah, it comes from us. And if that's the complaint about how it's ruining sports, yeah, that is a problem. But where is it going? I don't begrudge the athletes for generating the money. And, you know, the leagues are free to demand from the television networks what the television networks are willing to pay them. I mean, there is a market situation there. If it were that bad, there would be reasons for corrections. And we haven't, you know, we've seen some corrections. And I think we see modifications. And a lot of people criticize baseball for adding wild cards and changing the structure, but clearly it is something that is giving fans a lot of pleasure, and that, you know, the, those wildcard games were, well, the one wildcard game was pretty great this year. Well, I think, but, but the fact that uh, tickets are so expensive now is a real problem, that you, fam, you can't take your family to, to see the Yankees under, I don't know, $400 or something. Well, the solution to that is do what I do, be a fan of a terrible team like the Mets. <laughs> Pretty much free tickets. All right, we want to end by 9.30. It's 9.32, so we'll get one more question, but... How's it going? Uh, Quinn from San Francisco. Quinn? Yes. All right. Um, earlier you guys were talking about uh, managerial decisions and whether we're playing by a particular... Uh, new conventional wisdom of the last 10 years of the Moneyball era versus kind of crazy bunting, stealing, whatever. We also live in an era of real-time historical analysis, the example being the New York Times fourth down bot, yeah. which in real time is able to compare all the historical evidence of a particular situation and say what the statistically correct decision is. Do you think in our lifetime we'll see a team fully managed by algorithm or in the what will be the extent of real-time yeah. historical analysis infusing real-time decisions? It's funny. We live in a time of real-time historical analysis, and yet a third of Americans cannot name the vice president. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, teams aren't allowed to use computers on the field, actually. They should, put them, they should do that. They should take six and put them all in one division. Yeah. And they could play. You know, the winner goes to the playoffs. Yeah. The math nerds versus no, I mean, the I, real men. Right? I, think we've already, I think we've already seen a huge amount of progress towards what you're talking about, and there will never, I think, be fully algorithmic managing, but I think that, um, you know, with the fourth down bot, it doesn't take into account, for example, if, um, you know, the Patriots have a really good offense, so that would obviously affect what the decision is, and you're always going to want a coach to say, like, okay, we're doing particularly well on this day, or we're not on, on that day, but having that kind of information to inform your decision, we're moving in that direction, and I think we'll continue to. Players could wear Google Glass. I don't know why not. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely can see a time when there'll be on-site, on-sidelines algorithmic analysis of particular situations and where you know a team gets X number of timeouts and they're allowed to do whatever they want to do and use whatever computer they want to use. I would insist on a giant computer with a lot of buttons, and it has to make this noise. You know what, Mike Vec, Mike, um, Bill Vec once had fans hold up cards behind the, I think it was the Whites, or was it the St. Louis Browns dugout, to decide whether, to what to do, what kind of, a, what pitch to throw, or whether a player should steal, you know, what should happen next in the game. But most so it's already fans, happened. Most of the fans just had signs that said, nachos. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.